Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Today's episode is for anyone who's wondered why love has to hurt so much, but I'm here to tell you that it doesn't have to. And we're going to take a trip back into my love life, which has been traumatic to say the least. And it's my hope that this episode can kind of be like a POV. I'm your big sister giving you all the advice I wish my younger self had which would have allowed me to save myself quite a bit of pain and suffering while we take this trip down memory lane into my love life and history we're going to talk about some pretty heavy stuff grooming sexual assault sexual abuse and if these types of topics are not something that you're ready to listen to that's okay but this episode may not be for you i won't be going into graphic detail but I always like to give a little bit of a forewarning before I dive into an episode like this. We'll tie the episode up with a really positive message, which is how I have taken my power back and how you can become more deeply connected to your intuition. And it's my hope that with listening to my story and by sharing some of the tools that I've gained in my life, that it will really help some of you who deeply need it. So if this sounds like something you're interested in, we'll go ahead and roll that intro and jump right into it. I'm so glad you're here. You have entered Back from the Borderline, where we walk willingly into the darkness within our minds and return home to ourselves transformed. I'm your host, Molly. I spent most of my life numbing the pain and emptiness inside me, unaware that my self-sabotaging behaviors and thoughts were destroying my ability to connect with myself and other people. One day, I decided I was sick enough of my own bullshit to hear life calling, telling me it was time for a change, and I decided to answer that call. On this podcast... We'll learn that when we see ourselves as the hero of our own journey, it gives us the best chance at finding our inner truth and integrity. Together, we'll learn to hold complex feelings, expand our consciousness and self-awareness while making meaning of our suffering. Are you ready to find out who you are underneath the weight of everything that's been keeping you stuck? If the answer is yes, follow me down the rabbit hole of psychological and spiritual growth. I'm so glad you're here. And with that, let's dive straight in to the episode. Hello, hello, hello. It's another week, another episode. I'm so happy to be sitting here again with you. I'll paint the picture for you. I'm sitting here at my table facing out on my balcony 
where there's lots of birds and my bird feeders. So if you hear some bird noises, it's because I opened up the window and I just wanted to kind of let the birds do their thing. And I have a candle here. I've been trying to really just kind of ritualize my podcast recording. As I told you a few weeks back, I was feeling so burnt out. And because I had just scheduled so many interviews the last few months, and I realized, whoa, how much work it is to edit and have all these interviews. And I am so grateful to all my guests. It has been amazing, but it's also just much easier and much more calm and soothing to just show up here and have a chat with you. And not only that, when I have these types of episodes, the amount of feedback I get is just like 10 times. I did my episode last week all about just the most important recovery lessons that I've learned so far in my journey and I was overwhelmed with the messages that I received in a good way. So I want to let you know I heard you loud and clear. I got I swear like 30 messages across lots of different platforms saying please please do a menstrual cycle awareness episode. So I'm going to be doing that and talking all about PMDD and cycle awareness. So I want to put together some research for that. So I'm going to do that episode in a couple weeks. I also have another amazing interview that I did with the most incredible artist named Alessia who lives in London. Um, she, through her journey with BPD, CPTSD, she has now works for Vice making documentaries. And not only that, she is a painter and does just released an NFT collection from her art. And she's just the most incredible person. So I can't wait to share that interview with you. But today I want to talk all about love and toxic love and how maybe it isn't even love to begin with. I have been watching, like I'm sure everyone else in America is watching Euphoria, the show. Um, And if you haven't watched Euphoria, it is a show on HBO that follows the lives of some very dysfunctional high schoolers played by 30-year-old actors. (laughs) who are way hotter than anyone in high school that I went to. Like, (laughs) it's so funny because when you see actual high schoolers, it's just like, we're still in our awkward phase in high school, right? Like nobody looks like these actors and actresses in euphoria. Like we fucking wish, right? Um, But anyway, needless to say, it is if you are someone who appreciates cinematography and music and just really good writing. I mean, it's a really well done show. Is it incredibly triggering for people who have gone through a lot? Would I recommend watching Euphoria when you are in like a really dysregulated state? Probably not. (laughs) But if you are in a place where you think you can handle that kind of material, it's very interesting to watch. And just like anything else, there's so many there's a lot of criticism about euphoria and just like, it's not realistic. Da, da, da. It's like, yeah, it's, it's a show, right? It's supposed to be, um, just like Shakespeare isn't realistic, right? It's, it's supposed to be archetypal. It's supposed to make you feel it's supposed to be extreme so that it can kind of 
give rise to emotions. And it certainly did that for me. And one of the characters in Euphoria is Cassie. And she screams BPD to me. Um, Really intense abandonment issues. Her father left her when she was young. A lot of addiction in her family. Um, She is hypersexual ends up having sex with her best friend's boyfriend, right? Who's a very abusive person. And you are constantly thinking like, why is she doing these things, right? It seems so self-destructive from the outside. But then when you're in that reality, it is so, so painful. And that watching Cassie's dynamic I saw a lot of myself in Cassie and I've heard a lot of people respond to me on Instagram and talking with a few of my friends in the um, BPD, CBTSD community and they're like, whoa, Cassie, Cassie for me is like giving me flashbacks to my younger years. And not only that, I also watched Phoenix Rising, which is a new HBO documentary about Evan Rachel Wood and her experience being groomed and abused by Marilyn Manson, who, as I think everyone listening to this would know, is a very popular uh, singer and artist. And these two stories together, just Cassie and then Evan Rachel Wood and me reflecting a lot about my own love life. As many of you know, I'm 32 now and I'm in a a really stable relationship at this point in my life. And I'm so happy to be able to kind of sit in this very contained safe space that I've created for myself. And now looking back on the chaos is the only word I can describe of my love life from probably the ages of 15 to 28, 29 were just like incredibly chaotic years where I got myself into dangerous situations. And I was a victim, absolutely, in many of these. And also in so many of these, I had so many red flags, so many warning signs that I could have listened to, but I didn't. So I think a good way to start this is just taking a trip down memory lane, as I said in the intro, of talking about what I was like and what my relationship with love and my sexuality and all of these things were like growing up. I find that we don't have honest conversations about these things. I never had anyone that had honest conversations about these things with me, which I think was a huge reason as to why I didn't know what healthy love or healthy sex looked like. And so it's my hope that by sharing all of this in a really open way, and I need you to know, like, I, I've shared this stuff with some of my closest friends and family, but I've, I mean, some of it I haven't even shared with them. I'm just talking about it with you now because I'm trusting my gut. And we're going to talk more about this, about trusting our intuition and how important it is. And you're going to notice a theme throughout all of this. And that's what I want this episode to be about is the importance of our intuition, not as something like 
woo-woo magic, like your intuition, I'm an intuitive. No, our intuition is very real. It's a real thing that each of us has. And it's a tragedy that happens to so many of us growing up in homes where we're not taught to nurture that and where we're where we see things that aren't right in our in our childhood homes and it severs and murders our connection to our intuition and so we grow up ignoring those gut feelings that are there for a reason and now as as I'm looking back I realize a thread of truth and a thread of a connection through all of these things that have happened to me and that was me ignoring my intuition and not having a good connection with it. And this is a generational thing. My father came from an incredibly abusive home. And when I say incredibly abusive, it's like, imagine the worst horrors that could be inflicted upon a child is what was done to my father. My mother came from a incredibly cold and emotionally neglectful home. And So both of my parents also were robbed of their ability to connect with their intuition as well. And so I had no hope really of having a model for that. And because my parents both came from homes that didn't have a good model of what a good love connection was, I saw a lot of emotional abuse, manipulation, codependency growing up in my home between the dynamic between my parents. And since then, you know, I've actually noticed my mom and dad's relationship become a lot more stable and calm over the years. But when I was young, my parents were in their, you know, late twenties, early thirties. I saw so much chaos around me. And I know that that set me up for the patterns that I was doomed to perpetuate in my 20s and 30s. And now being 32 now, I can't even imagine if I had had a child when I was in my early 20s and the chaos that those children would have witnessed in my life. I'm so grateful that that didn't happen. And I'm not putting myself on a pedestal because I... I have gotten myself into some really irresponsible situations sexually, and I could just as easily have had a child by now, but I, that just didn't happen. It didn't happen that way. Um, but these are just really honest reflections that I have for you. But the thread that we're going to notice here as I share about some things that have happened in my past is a disconnection from my intuition. All the times that I knew that something just didn't feel quite right, But because I lacked that connection to my core gut instinct and I ignored it, I just said, all right, fuck it. Let's just keep going with this. And I urge you to think about your own experience too. Where have you gone through similar things as me? Do you notice this thread in your own life of ignoring that gut feeling, that intuition So I guess I can start back as far as I can remember, and that is even just as early into elementary school. And I always was just boy crazy, I think. I just always wanted, I was obsessed with boys wanting to, I wanted boys to like me. And as I've talked about in previous episodes, I was 
a bit of an ugly duckling, a lot of an ugly duckling. I had glasses. I was really nerdy. I loved to read and I was not athletic at all. I was really uncoordinated. So like all the things that would make me cool, I didn't have those things. And not only that, I was really emotional. I took things really personally. And so I interrupted people a lot, you know, so I always found myself on the outside of the social circle. Um, And it was more painful too, because I remember growing up and seeing like those nerds in school, you know, the like nerdy people that you are around in school that like, they just like claimed their nerdiness. Like I remember going to school with those people and like they grew up too into such like stable individuals because if there's any advice that I can give for people that are listening to this that are young and if you're my age or older, you'll know is like, it doesn't fucking matter who thinks you're cool in elementary school, junior high or high school. It is like literally zero out of 10 importance in your life. However, we give it 10 out of 10 importance. And so there are those people in school that just get it. And like, I feel like they embrace their nerdiness and they know that this is such a brief period in their life, or maybe they're just so stable. I don't know. But I was not that person. I was painfully nerdy, but also painfully wanted to be different. I painfully wanted to fit in. And I wanted people to like me so bad. And I sensed that the people that I was trying to force to like me felt like I was kind of uncool. And I just can't even feel that pain in my chest now, thinking about it now. And I was made fun of for having no boobs, you know, when I was. 12, 13, I was a really, really late bloomer. I didn't have my period, I think, until I was like 16, 15, maybe 16. I had really, really small boobs, maybe none for a long time. And remember that this was, I was in junior high in like 2003, four. And this is the time of like big boobs were a thing. Like boobs were the thing. If we weren't in the era of Kim Kardashian, butts weren't even a thing. And if you had a big butt, it actually was kind of like gross. It, the ideal was to be like skinny, white girl, spray tan, blonde hair extensions, big boobs, Abercrombie, and Hollister clothes. Like, And if you didn't have that, you weren't cool. And I went to school in Wyoming. That's where I grew up. And I didn't have those things. And I remember just painfully like wanting my mom to take me to Abercrombie and buy the clothes. And we, we didn't have like a ton of money. My parents were teachers. And so like, it was a stretch to buy me those clothes. And I even like ended up getting a job at 15 years old, like as a fry cook at hamburger stand. And I remember like, I just wanted to save up so I could buy American Eagle and Hollister and Abercrombie because I just wanted to be cool so, so painful to think about. And I got bullied. I remember a boy found out that I stuffed my bra in junior high because I was stuffed my bra literally so that I could have boobs and then was made fun of for that. And so it's like just all this trauma in high school. Finally, I decided I was going to like smash myself into the hot girl box. So I finally started kind of growing into myself more and boys started to pay attention to me. And this was like, ah, 
oh, I feel like this is what life is about. I started getting male attention and then that was all that mattered. No more nerdy Molly, no more like I, I got A's pretty effortlessly in school without trying very hard, but like I could have thrown myself into my studies and like found things I was passionate about, but all my passions were gone. All that mattered was boys and getting male attention. And now those of you who grew up in that are, that are like millennials that went to high school in the age of like, I graduated in 2008. So I was in high school probably from 2005 to 2008. And this was the era where teachers were like body shaming girls like crazy. So I remember getting sent to the office for wearing spaghetti straps because it would distract boys. And now you could like report that and like a news reporter would do a fucking hit piece on a school body shaming girls or sex shaming girls. But that wasn't a thing back then. It was like, cover yourself up. You're distracting the boys. And there was a teacher in high school, my choir teacher, who kind of like had it out for me, I felt. And this isn't like me being like, she had it out for me. Like I'm convinced and I've talked to like my parents since then and I've had conversations with my mom and my mom's like, I wonder if you like looked like someone she really hated in high school or something. And she like, you triggered something in her because it was a running joke in choir that with a few of the boys in choir, they were like, let's all talk. And this teacher, who I won't name, let's see if she'll, she'll yell at us, she'll yell at us. Or if Molly talks, she'll yell at her. So there were like experiments being conducted and it was a running joke that she had like something against me because these guys would talk in the back row and this teacher would do nothing and they would kind of be class clowns. But the moment I would talk to them, this teacher would just like yell at me in front of everyone. And the way that she would reprimand me in class it was like humiliating, if that makes sense. Like it wasn't just like, hey, let's pay attention. She would find ways to just be really humiliating. So this all culminated in kind of like a teacher's meeting. And I was a straight A student. So like it was so unusual for me to have issues with a teacher. And I was really, really skilled in choir. And so I had a B and there were just issues with this teacher. And so we had a teacher meeting with my mom, my dad, this teacher and the principal, because I was like, this is not fair. Like I shouldn't be, why am I being treated differently than other people? So when we met with this teacher, we kind of all sat down and at the meeting, you know, my mom or my dad were just like, so what's the problem here? You know, what's, what's going on? What's the issue? And we talked for a while and my teacher brought up this example. And she said that in the meeting that I was just attention seeking. And that was kind of her issue is that it, I was, I was displaying attention seeking behavior. And she gave an example and she said, you know, this summer when my husband and I were driving outside, um, past the school, I noticed Molly and her friend, Megan, my best friend, Megan at the time were walking down the street back, um, just in their bikinis only, just in their swimsuits. And my husband's neck snapped around and I was just horrified. 
And I remember in that time in the meeting, my mom was just kind of like, huh? And I was like, huh? And this woman, a full grown woman was talking about me and my best friend who were 16 at the time saying how disgusting and appalling it was as it was that we were walking down the street in our bikinis. And I'd said in the meeting to my mom, I was like, mom, we were walking back from the pool. Like we had our towels over our shoulders and we were walking back from the pool. We were teenage girls walking back home. My, the pool was five minutes walk from my house. And my mom, who's a really passive person, if I were, if that were my daughter, I would probably have like screamed at that teacher, but my mom's quite passive. And she just said, I'm trying to understand what the problem is here. And after we left that meeting, I just remember my mom and I talking and being like, why is it my fault that your husband's neck snapped around at two teenage girls walking in their bikinis? And so right then and there, I tell you this story because this is how a lot of girls are made to think something about their sexuality as being something bad and also as being something that they're like inflicting upon men, that it's our responsibility to not draw negative attention to ourselves. And that is a memory that really sticks in my mind. And I know that it had a massive impact on me and I probably could never untease this ball of yarn or identify all of the ways it fucked me up but this combined with the fact that I had a household where sex was not talked about at all I know it fucked me up in more ways than I'll probably ever know and around this same time around 15 16 17 I was dating my first boyfriend at the time who by the way is still the kindest person that I ever had (laughs) the blessing to date when I was a teenager. He was my first love and he was an incredibly sweet human being. He was a fellow musician, but I would go with him to this guy's house who was a producer in our hometown at the time. And now thinking back on it, it's just like laughable. This guy was just like this kind of like in his mid thirties and clearly just loved that like young people would come to his house to record in his quote unquote studio. When in reality, now I know it was just kind of a way for him to probably get the next girl that he would be grooming. And I would often find myself at this guy's house. I'll call him Kay. And, um, when we were at Kay's house, there was always this joke, like I was 16 at the time and I remember him making jokes of like, so Molly, when are you going to be 18? Like, when are you legal? When are you legal? You know, I remember that so clearly and I laughed it off at the time. And at that time I was also working at the mall and I had a job that I really loved at the mall. I was working at one of those kiosks in the middle of the mall where you sell the lotion and you're like, you're that annoying person that's like, hey, can I, can I talk to you? Can I talk to you? And the girls I worked with were these two Israeli girls who are still friends of mine to this day. And they taught me everything I know about selling, which I still use in my, my nine to five. <laughs> it was a really like hardcore crash course in sales and confidence and being able to kind of like talk to people on the fly. But as I was doing this job, you know, 
we were kind of, I was told like target guys, you know, because they're, they're going to buy the stuff. You can kind of like charm them. And I ended up meeting this guy who ended up being 25 and I was 16 and a half, 17 at the time. He knew that. And I struck up a relationship with him. And this guy was, you know, nine years older than me. I was a teenager. He was a grown man and had a kid, actually, a daughter. And I ended up seeing him for like nine months. And he knew very well how old I was. He knew that I was a virgin. And he was really kind to me, like really sweet. It was that like very innocent seeming relationship I would just go over to his house we would watch movies and make out and I wasn't ready to do anything sexually at the time and I was 17 by the time that he took my virginity and he was 25 26 and I remember just starting to feel more and more that it wasn't right. And I remember, this is really hard to talk about. I remember him laughing because he said something about doggy style. And I thought that that was anal sex. And he thought that was the funniest thing ever because, because I was like so inexperienced. Right. And he called me Similac which is actually like baby formula. It's like an, it's a kind of baby formula. And now when I think about guys, I haven't thought about this. It's like making me really emotional and it's making me emotional because I'm thinking about my, like if I had a 16 year old daughter, how wrong that would be. And when now as I'm 32 and I look at 16 year old girls, I think about how young they look. And how wrong that was. And it just didn't even, I felt, I felt like nothing. I thought that I was so mature. I thought that it was so cool that I was seeing a guy older than me. And those of you who are, who this is like touching something inside of you that you've been through this, or if you're a teenager and there is a man who is 10 years older than you, who is a grown ass man or a woman you know, unfortunately, I think most of this stuff happened is perpetuated by men statistically, I think, but you can call me out on that if that's wrong. It's not okay. And when you are in your adult years, you will look at teenagers most likely and be like, that's not right. They are not ready. And so around this time, I won a beauty pageant, which was uh, Miss Teen Wyoming. I was Miss Teen Wyoming for a year. I went on to go to Miss Teen USA, which was Donald Trump's pageant, by the way. Another whole story I could tell all of you. But I I won the pageant and I just started like really feeling like me and Jay, this guy, I will call him. Jay is the abbreviation for his first name. Um, It's just, I started to feel like, whoa, I'm in a different world than him. Like he's a grown adult with a kid going to work and I'm like a teenager that just won a beauty pageant and I have to do all this stuff for the pageant and we just kind of grew apart 
And so I ended up breaking up with him. And I'm bringing this to your attention because do you notice how there was no rape here? He waited patiently for me to be ready to have sex with him. I had sex with him for the first time and it was fine. It was nice. And and I mean nice by meaning like there was nothing traumatic. But do you see the undercurrent of it being so, so wrong still? And this is why I want to talk about this because it's not black and white. And it's not talked about enough about these things that are just wrong, you know, that, that now just seem wrong where if, and when you're in it, it doesn't necessarily feel wrong. It's the adult's responsibility to know what's right and wrong. And you are just a child being taken advantage of. Do you see what I'm saying? (sighs) I did not expect this to be this, um, hard, So around this time, I think was around when there was another guy who was the husband of a teacher that taught at my mom and dad's school. And this guy was easily in his late 30s, early 40s. Again, super hot, super hot guy. When I say hot, hot guy, same with the other guy. That's another thing I think. I think like so many of us think about, you know, predators being like, oh, he looks like a pedophile, you know? No, that's another thing. Attractive men also, I think, get away with a lot. Um, At least the, the ones in my story did. And they also seem safer because they're beautiful, right? And it's so alluring. It's almost like, you know, the snake in the jungle book, it sings that song and it's like, trust in me, trust in me. And I felt like I was like Mowgli in the jungle book to these older men where I was just like, so hypnotized by their beauty. And it was something kind of bad. And so I was like drawn to it, like a moth to a flame. And this guy, when I tell you, I actually don't even remember how we connected. It had to have been online. This was like the era when MySpace was just kind of starting out. I feel like we messaged on MySpace. And at this point, I was talking to multiple older men. Um, And they were all like, and they were all really good looking, but they were all too old to be talking to a 16, 17 year old girl. And so I ended up at this guy's house and I have a distinct memory of sitting on his couch and looking up at the pictures of his kids and his wife on the wall. And something so sick in my stomach started grumbling like that feeling like where you're going to like shit yourself, you know, <laughs> that, that nervous energy. And this guy was huge. Like he was like a, a bodybuilder kind of body and tall, like six, four, like ex pro athlete kind of looking guy. And I realized I'm 17 sitting in the house 
no one knows where I am because I'm too ashamed to tell anyone, right? Not telling, didn't tell any of my friends, didn't tell anyone where I am. And I am in the house with this big grown ass man. And I think he expects me to do something with him. And I just remember being so overwhelmed with fear. And again, thank God I, I made an excuse. I remember so clearly being like, I didn't feel well. And he's like, okay. And like, I think he kissed me. And I remember feeling so sick and I left and I never talked to him again. And I look back again, 17 year old girl, 40 something year old man. It's not okay. But again, did I find myself raped at this point? Did I, um, did he keep me against my will? No, but still so deeply wrong but all of these men gave me so much validation when i tell you they love bombed me they told me how beautiful i was just all the validation all the emotional validation that i didn't get at home i was getting from these men and i thought this is love like this this is what i want right and I feel so bad for that girl looking back because she had no idea what love was and she was being groomed and abused and I had no idea. So when they talk about the statute of limitations being like three or four years, it took me years to look back on this and think, oh my God, that was not okay. Whereas Six, seven years ago, if you would have asked me, I would have been like, I was fine. Do you see what I'm saying? So I go back again. If you are a young girl or a young man, this happens to so many young gay men too that I have spoken to. So many of my gay friends have had horrifically terrifying experiences with older men and being groomed and sexually assaulted by older gay men. I made many friends when I worked in fashion. For those of you that didn't don't know, I haven't shared much about this. I worked at Louis Vuitton and Givenchy for a while when I lived in London, and I made friends with quite a few male models. I also hooked up with quite a few straight male models and then made friends with all the gay male models. <laughs> and um, the horror stories that both the straight, actually straight male models and gay male models told me about the terrifyingly horrible encounters they had with older predatory gay men in fashion is enough to make your hair curl. It's terrifying. So this is not just something that happens to women, but I'm just speaking from my own experience. I also have a friend in London. I haven't spoken to her for a few years, She's actually since become very, very successful. Um, Her name's Monroe Bergdorf, and she's a trans woman, and she has her own podcast. She's an incredible advocate. The horror stories that she experienced as a trans woman with grooming and sexual assault. So this is an experience shared by so many, and I want to highlight that this is my POV, right? I can only speak from my perspective. So shortly after the situation with the 40-something-year-old man, 
I found myself in a relationship with a guy who I was 18 at this point, and I think he was probably, he was in his mid to early 20s, I think. In any case, the age difference wasn't dramatic, but this relationship was the beginning of serious emotional, physical, sexual abuse and mostly just like mental head fuckery um, that I experienced. This guy's name also started with J. I had three J's <laughs> in my um, experience, but this guy's name also started with a J. And J was a person who clearly had a very traumatic upbringing of his own. And I'll preface that, but needless to say, he was carrying on a relationship with me and another girl at the, at the same time and living with her. But I had no idea this time. I had no idea. I'd show up to his house and he, there was girl stuff there. And you know, when you go to a guy's house, it's like, there's kind of stuff there that you're like, this looks like a woman's touch. But he was like the best, most charismatic liar. Again, attractive guy, very charismatic. He could convince you of anything. So he just like had said, you know, we went through a really traumatic breakup. Her stuff is still here, you know. Then I find out that this girl was actually like a nurse, a nighttime nurse, and he would have me over. I'd And I had no idea. Long story short, that was a chaotic, horrible relationship. She ended up finding out, terrorizing me. She was like, took it out on me and not as much on him. She ended up fucking, um, I ended up getting dragged by my hair out of a house by her. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, with no pants on, drug by my hair out of a house when I was 18 years old. And after that, I never wanted to see him again. I had no idea at this point that he had had a girlfriend and that was my first introduction to it. And then you would think you would never go back to this guy, right? He convinced me again. (laughs) Do you see all these points along the way that like I could have, I could have just not answered that MySpace message from this 40-year-old guy with a wife. I could have just, when I was working at the mall, I kind of said, hey, this guy's 25 years old and I'm 16. This doesn't feel right because I got these feelings where I just thought, hmm, this isn't right. And with Jay, after that traumatic thing, he came to me so sad and saying, I'm so sorry. She should have never done that. I love you. I want to be with you. And I went back. This is when, around the time when I was at a park with him and he wanted to have sex on like a picnic table and I didn't want to. And he convinced and convinced and convinced me that if I loved him, wow, I I can't believe that you are not spontaneous. You don't want to do this. Whittled me, whittled me down. And I just remember giving in and then 
right after the intercourse started, I said, I don't want to do this anymore. And he just said, shut up. And I remember looking up and just wanting it to be over and knowing that this person was so much bigger than me that, and not only that, I knew how horrible it would be if I made a scene. And so I just had to think in my mind, like, just wait for it to be over. And I think that so many of us who've been through these kind of situations where we think that rape, we think about it as someone, you know, breaking into your house and shoving you on a bed and forcing you, someone you don't even know. And that happens to people and it's horribly traumatic. It hasn't happened to me, but I can't even imagine how traumatic that would be. But often we don't talk about these things where it's the just looking up at the ceiling or the sky and just being like, I just want this to be over. And I don't want to deal with the, the blowback. If I say no, I'd, I'd rather just, I'd rather just wait for it to be over. And again, this is tough. This is tough stuff to talk about, but I find it so important because no one talked to me about these things. And I want to talk to you about them because along the way with Jay, especially, there were so many times where I'm like, this just doesn't feel right. The moment I went into his house and I saw that there was stuff that looked like it was from another girl, I should have just been like, no. And he was such a good liar, but I something in me, whenever he talked to me and tried to convince me of stuff, I was like, mm, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel right but I didn't trust my intuition. You know in your stomach when something is wrong. You feel it. And that intuition is there for a reason. And when I have a daughter or a son or whatever my child chooses to be, I am going to teach them to trust that gut instinct every single time. It's the most important thing I think we can teach our children And we can reteach ourselves too. If you're listening to this and this is so hard for you and you just think, fuck, like this is me or this has been my experience, it's not too late. So we can continue down the trip down memory lane after Jay. Soon after that is when I decided to go to London and um, do a study abroad program there. I ended that relationship. It ended really traumatically, but I had eventually had enough after catching him in a lie time after time after time, but then constantly taking him back and ignoring my gut instinct because there was passion there, right? The the age-old thing. Throughout my life, I've always been like, I want a spark. I want passion. But often, passion was just another word for abuse and uncertainty. So I ended up going to London. I met a guy there when I was in Amsterdam on a weekend trip. He happened to also live in London. And... He was, again, very charming, very good-looking, and a nice person, truly. Now, this person was a really good person. I 
have love for him to this day. Um, but from the beginning, I felt red flags. I found out in a way that I shouldn't have about three months into our relationship that he had been dating someone else when he met me. I got bad gut feelings, ignored them. We stayed in a long distance relationship for a year and a half and I ended up moving back to London to be with him. We got married a couple years after that and he ended up cheating on me three months after our wedding. After my mom and dad paid their as school teachers paid for our wedding in Wyoming all his family flew to London to be there had a beautiful wedding my dad gave a gorgeous speech and he ended up cheating on me with a dental hygienist on tinder three months into our marriage it was horrible but again When I look back, the red flags were there and I ignored my gut feeling. Now I was by no means was I a perfect partner in this marriage. I was extremely emotionally dysregulated, extremely codependent, very volatile. I think I was just, and thinking back on it now, like when I'm giving compassion to that younger version of myself, like I had just gone through so much trauma and giving compassion for him his dad cheated on his mom. We were just acting out our patterns on each other and we weren't compatible when I look back on it now. He was extremely extroverted. I'm extremely introverted. And I'm not saying that pairing can't work, but it just, it didn't work for us. After we separated, I bounced right into a rebound relationship. And when I say hard rebound, I was living with this other guy within like a few months. We said we loved each other really quickly. That was another pattern that I always had where I said I loved you and we would exchange I love yous with people very early on, too early on, to the point where it's like, what is love, right? It, it lost its sacred element at this point moved in really quick and I knew so many times another guy who had just quote-unquote broken up with a girl for me and had a kid and he had a lot of money like we he would get really expensive hotels for us and take my sister and me out for nice dinners and drop a lot of cash and I always was just kind of like where does he get that because he worked at the same job as me and I knew how much money I made and I knew that he shouldn't be able to afford all that stuff long story short I found out that he and his best friend did a lot of credit card fraud and that's how he was paying for stuff by this time Because I had moved so fast, I was living with this person at this point when I found this out. There's no reason why I should have been living with someone three months in. I ignored all these gut feelings yet again and found myself stuck in a relationship with someone who is a criminal. And not only that, the verbal abuse that he inflicted on me was escalating and escalating. And not only that too... He was incredibly intelligent. And this is the first person that I dated, well, similar to Jay that they were so emotionally manipulative and our sexual chemistry was really good. 
So I was really confused and I had such a hard time getting away from that relationship. And how that ended up ending was he yelled at my sister and the respect I didn't have for myself, (laughs) seeing him yell at my little sister and make her cry was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. And the last thing I remember about that relationship was coming home, telling him he needed to get out and getting really, really scared about what he would do. And so I told my little sister to take my dog and go on a walk. And as my little sister started walking down the apartment complex hallway, he started going after her and my dog. And I just remember in my mind thinking, I don't want to know what happens when he gets to them. Like, what is his plan when he gets to her? And so I went after him and I grabbed his shoulder. And that's the last thing I remember because he smacked me up against a wall. And that is how that relationship ended. And I remember... Being, He held my sister and I in that apartment and basically told us if we didn't transfer him X amount of money, he would do this, that, and the other to us. And I just remember looking at my sister and being so scared. Like, I didn't know what to do. And because he was into some serious criminal activity, I knew he was mixed up with some really scary people in London And my sister and I are not from there and we could just be two dead immigrant statistics in London. And I was terrified. And I look back at that now and I just think, yes, was I a victim of domestic abuse then? Yes. But did I also have so many times to not ignore those red flags? Also, yes. Which is why... I'm weaving this into every single thing that happened to me. Trust your intuition. Trust those red flags. Because while we become victims to things, sometimes, sometimes there are things that we can do to prevent things from getting worse. Sometimes there's not. And I want you to think dialectically about this, right? I'm not saying everything is black and white. Sometimes people are just victims of something and there's nothing they could have done. And that is a reality but I'm speaking from my experience, it's a lot harder to look back at your life and think of all the ways that maybe you could have prevented yourself from becoming a victim in certain situations. That's not easy to look at. And I want to commend you if you are willing to step bravely into that reality with me because it's not easy. And I also want you to make sure that you also put your critical thinking cap on and know the difference between times you could have seen the red flags and then also times where you were just a victim of something and you could not have done anything differently, right? And either way, whether either one of those scenarios, you should not have any shame or beat up on yourself about it. Knowledge is power because this gives us the tools to move forward and now we can learn to trust that gut instinct, I don't shame myself and I spent a lot of time shaming myself about all of this. And I'll tell you what, when I was stuck in that headspace, I wasn't getting anywhere closer to recovery. So to round out my love life experience, after I ended things with 
the other J. This guy was the J name too. The physical abuse situation that happened in London, the rebound after my ex-husband. I went into what I call lovingly my hoe phase. Like I remember just being like, fuck love. And I'm just going to date casually and date the hottest guys I can find and go out and party and upload the hottest pictures I can on Instagram and just lean all the way into that. And I've never felt more empty, sad, and alone than those times. I hated that time of my life. I felt... I would tell everyone that I was really sexually liberated, that like, oh, I'm just doing what I want, you know? But I felt so, I felt like a used trash can. I felt like shit. I didn't feel good after sexual encounters. I wasn't actually enjoying it. I was just thriving off of the attention and validation. But as soon as it was gone and those guys would go home, I would feel disgusting and horrible about myself. And this isn't sex shaming. It was because the intention behind the sex, like it was just to help myself feel seen and validated. As I've said in previous episodes, there's, if you are having sex with multiple people and you are feeling fully embodied and fully empowered and you are consciously doing this, then power to you. But I was doing this in a really unconscious, um, way as a form of numbing. And I've talked about it before, but I call this sexist self-harm, which is what I was doing. It was a form of self-harm. I don't cut myself. I never have. I've never, you know, inflicted classic self-harm, but I've certainly used sex and my relationship with men as a form of self-harm. And I had no idea how much damage it was doing to me. So when I moved to LA, I ended up securing a really good manager that was connected to a really powerful music mogul in LA who I will also not name. And they got me a meeting at Interscope Records. Everything was going well. I was having um, multiple writing sessions for an EP And then my manager tried to have sex with me in the back of a car. (laughs) I said no. And I found myself emailing my lawyer the next day saying, hey, I think I is, do I have options to drop my manager? I feel really uncomfortable. What I didn't know is my manager knew my lawyer. My lawyer must have told my manager what I was doing. And so the next day, my manager I got an email that both my manager and my lawyer dropped me as clients and I never heard anything back from Interscope and I lost all of the masters to all the songs that I was writing and producing and working on and my dream was just snatched away from me just like that. That was a really dark time for me and I started doing sugar baby stuff where I advertised myself on a sugar baby website and I ended up dating some guys and I was very (laughs) 
clever in it for a while because I was able to kind of meet up with these guys and string them along and get money without having to be intimate with them. And I ended up in a really scary position where this guy wanted to take me to Napa, Napa Valley wine country, kind of outside of San Francisco. And thankfully I got one of my friends to go with me because I didn't want to go alone. And I ended up in a bed with a very, very drunk older man, sugar daddy client who was wasted and trying to sleep with me. And I was so triggered and terrified that I was going to get sexually assaulted that I got out of the bed and drove home with my friend really drunk at three in the morning back to San Francisco And I could go into detail about that encounter, but it was scary. He didn't want us to leave. And we drove intoxicated back to San Francisco. And I was, had done cocaine. I was, had drunk. I was not okay to drive. But we had to get out of there. And this guy proceeded to stalk and harass me for weeks after... I did that. I was terrified yet again because this man was filthy rich and could easily probably make me disappear. And this is around the time, if you've listened to episodes one, two, three, I talked about when I was dating an actor um, in LA. And I started dating this actor who's kind of like dorky and sweet dated him. I was so excited to be dating him. And three months later, he dumped me. And this is around the time that my grandfather committed suicide. My grandma died. Then that guy dumped me. And that is when I became really suicidal. And looking back, I know that it was just like a culmination of using my body as just a trash can I had such little respect for myself and my body and had been attracting these broken, hurt, angry men like a moth to a flame. And it just reinforced my worldview that the world was a scary place full of bad people that wanted to hurt me and I was a perpetual victim. And... It was a really dark, dark time. And it's no wonder I got myself into a place where I didn't want to be alive anymore. It was a horrible dark time. I remember those times where I laid in bed all day and I dreaded, dreaded the nighttime because when the nighttime would come, that's when my suicidal thoughts would be the worst. And it was just horrible. So that is the story of my love life. And shortly after that is when I met Zaz, who I'm with now. And I remember when I met Zaz, I had said like, I'm not having sex with anyone for months. Like I'm going to take as much time as I need. I'm not going to have physical intimacy with anyone until I'm sure of who they are as a person first. And if they want to be around me for me and not just sexually. 
And when I met Zaz, <laughs> I remember declaring that very openly on his first day, on our first date and being like, by the way, I'm, I'm basically celibate right now. Like I'm not sleeping with anyone for a long time. <laughs> I just remember Zaz being like, okay, cool. <laughs> he wasn't phased by it at all. He's like, okay, that's fine. Anyway, what, what should we get to eat now? <laughs> and Zaz was such a healing presence for me because we just hung out for months, months and months and months before intimacy was ever really on the table. And ever since then, I've realized that love is friendship first. True love is. I don't feel passion with Zaz like I felt with some of these other more toxic relationships. I feel security. I feel dependability. I feel stability. I feel like someone who truly loves me for me. I feel like I can count on what we've got. Like I trust him. Like I know the kind of human being he is. I don't get any red flags. None. No bad gut feelings. And I almost sabotaged what I had with him for a long time because I kept constantly asking myself like, oh, is there enough passion? Is there enough spark? No, that is just the call of the destruction of the chaos trying to, meet, trying to pull me back in to, into it, right? And I hope that this helps someone else out there I know like this is the longest that I've kind of like just talked about like the biography of my love life. And I am trusting my gut that I just feel like someone needs to hear this now. Someone needs to feel like you're not alone, that all these things that have felt wrong to you, they, they probably were not okay. And not only that, You don't have to make this your identity. One of the things that I felt as I was finishing the Phoenix Rising series that Evan Rachel Wood put out about, you know, her grooming and abuse by Marilyn Manson, I found myself in tears multiple times watching that because I could relate so much to her story and what she went through being groomed by an older man. And I also was left with a feeling of feeling so bad for her where it's like it seems like this has taken over her whole life and not only her life her child's life her friends and family her parents she lost a marriage and she's alone now you know like kind of just like this abuse this event this thing that happened to her is become her whole identity and I feel so badly for her in that and I and I just wanted to like hug her in that documentary and what I found myself at the end of that being is like god I don't want my identity to be my abuse I don't want my identity to be my BPD or CPTSD symptoms like I want to take what I've learned find the connecting thread which is my disconnection from my intuition. And I want to focus on the future. And I want to focus on by sharing my story, if I can help even just one person 
become more connected to their intuition and save them from maybe something horrible happening. Maybe someone is listening right now and they've got that bad gut feeling. And if listening to me could protect them from something bad happening, then that would be worth it. So rather than making it my identity, I want to I want to share and I want to help us overcome because my friends, people that end up getting killed or murdered are very rarely killed by like a Ted Bundy, like someone finding you randomly that doesn't know me. It's often someone that they know. And it's often like some type of crime of passion, and quite often it ends up being someone who their friends and family kind of had a bad feeling about it. That person had a bad feeling and then they just continue to meet them and continue to carry it on and carry it on and ignore that gut feeling. And then something terrible ends up happening. I get that feeling now when I'm watching all this stuff going down about Kim Kardashian and Kanye West. And when I watch his behavior now, it fills me with so much empathy for Kim Kardashian. I'm not, I don't follow the Kardashians or anything. And I, I have a lot of issues with how I believe that family has had a drastically negative impact on the body image of women and girls. I could go on and on about it, but I can still feel empathy for Kim Kardashian and how scary it feels to know that a man kind of is like struggling and in pain and he is very rich and has all the resources in the world and clearly not enough people around him to tell him he's lost his path and it's so easy for something horrible to happen to someone but kim kardashian knew who she was marrying right look kanye west has a history of this kind of behavior and I'm sure there were red flags for her too, right? This happens to everyone, celebrities, me and you, everybody. Everyone could do with a little bit of listening to their gut instinct, not a little bit, a lot of it. So how can we tap into our intuition? Because so many of us have had our connection to our intuition severed in childhood. So for example, and I'm, I also think it's not healthy to blame everything on your parents, blame everything. You know, there's a difference between blaming and just like going, Hmm, rising above it all. I like to say like, I'm zooming out and it's like, I'm witness, I'm observing as like an unbiased outsider looking in. And when I zoom out and look at little Molly and then the examples of relationships she saw as a child and if I had anyone in my life that trusted that gut instinct did I ever have anyone tell me to trust my gut instincts no the messages I got were when you point out that there's abusive behavior going on you get yelled at sent to your room told you that you are ruining the family right and so it's no surprise what that I started ignoring my gut instinct. I got zero mirroring, emotional mirroring from my parents and was thought of as a burden and kind of an annoyance, no emotional attunement at home. So it's no surprise that when 
attractive older men started love bombing me and flooding me with attention and validation that I sucked that up like someone dying of thirst in the desert. It's no surprise. And I'm full of compassion and love for that girl. And I want you to be full of compassion and love for that little you too. And know that there is a future and there's a reality where this doesn't have to happen to you anymore. The beauty about human beings is that, you know, our brains are plastic. We can heal trauma. We can um, change our brains. We can change our reactions and our patterns and coping skills, and we can heal. We really can. And as I've said before, that journey's never over, but there's a path forward. You don't have to keep repeating that cycle. And as I look back, I was like, even talking to all of you today, this is the first time I've ever sat down and actually chronologically talked about all of this ever. I need you to know that. Like, I'm taking a chance at just kind of like trusting that this is going to help. Just like I trusted last week where I sat down and I'm just like, I'm going to share the recovery lessons. I'm trusting that me just giving you this timeline is going to encourage you to think about your timeline and that moments in mine will make you think about things you've gone through. And these reflections, just looking at it and observing you can see the patterns. And by seeing those patterns, you can say, I'm not going to repeat that again. And here's what I'm going to do. And I notice that I'm attracting the same kind of person. And I'm noticing that I see the same signs, but I don't listen to them. And you're not tuning into that gut. So how can we get better about tuning in to our gut instinct? Someone who I have just fallen in love with over the last few months is Martha Beck. And if you are a longtime listener, I did an episode a few episodes back called The Power of Self-Inquiry. And you'll remember that I read part of Martha's book, The Way of Integrity, in that episode. And since then, I've just like fallen into like just an obsession with her and her content. And now I'm listening to her podcast, The Gathering Room, and I'm following her on Instagram. And now I want to read her other books. I just, sometimes you encounter those wise elders. I think of her as an elder and I adore her. So she writes for Oprah magazine. She writes for all these different online platforms because she's an incredible author. And I'm going to read a couple of things to you that she wrote about how to tune into your intuition. And I want to give her full credit for this because this is all her wisdom, but I am just trusting that you all need to hear this as well. Because after hearing all this shit, the sad stuff, and then probably maybe hearing moments that you related to in my journey, you're like, yeah, okay, Molly, I'm totally shitty at tuning into my gut. Now what? Now what the fuck am I supposed to do? Like, I don't want to just tell you my sad swan song and then you not have any tools. So let's end this by talking about and making a pact together because I'm on this journey with you. Everything I'm sharing with you, that's what I love about this podcast is like you're watching me go through this at the same time. And 
I'm going to update you on how it's going as we continue. So let's make a pact together to be better at tuning into our gut. And let's let these words of Martha Beck guide us in how to do it. So I'm going to read you a couple of articles by her and we're going to talk about them together. So this first article is by Martha Beck for Oprah Magazine and It's called Five Steps to Tap into Your Intuition. She starts by saying, I won't mince words. If you've never learned to tap into your intuition, your life is almost certainly much more difficult than it needs to be. Why? Because your intuition helps you make choices based on what you actually want. It helps you avoid trouble, draws you toward positive situations and away from negative ones. It circumvents your intellect, which can tell you all kinds of inaccurate, critical, self-defeating things, and instead guides you based upon what your body, your very essence, knows to be true. Your intuition never criticizes you. If you're hearing an inner voice that sounds shaming, blaming, disdainful, withering, or mean, you're not hearing your intuition. I'm pausing here. This is my commentary, Molly's sidebar. I love that because it's so important especially those of us that struggle with complex trauma, BPD, we struggle a lot of times with stories and, you know, creating these sometimes paranoid narratives, paranoid narratives in our minds. And if it's stressful, self-blaming, shaming, if it sounds like your inner critic, that's not your gut, right? So Martha Beck says, your intuition functions more like a kitten, It may be urgent, nervous, or resistant, but it could never imply that something is wrong with you. Of course, it's all well and good to know how valuable your intuition is, but that doesn't mean you know how to listen to it. Many of us don't, which is where I come in. If your mission is intuition, these five lessons will get you started. Lesson number one, dropping into yourself. Since intuition relies on physiological sensations, you switch it on by transferring all your attention from your thoughts to your body, focusing equally on every part. Start by relaxing your muscles. Breathe deeply and evenly. Now scan your whole being without judgment or effort, just noticing any areas of comfort or discomfort, relaxation or tension. Some places, such as your gut, shoulders, jaw, may be so tense and frozen You won't be able to feel them at all. Wiggle them around a little until you at least become aware they exist. Don't fight any pain you may encounter. Just let yourself melt into it. The more you can become aware of your body from the inside, the more clearly you'll notice areas of gripping or contraction. These tight spots could be information from your intuition. As you attend to them, they'll begin to bring up images and emotions. Allow this to happen. Your naughty lower back may conjure the irritation that you feel toward your snobby sister. The clutching sensation in your throat may reveal hatred of telemarketing. Simply observe this information without moving or acting in any way. If you just do this, you'll open up your intuition and begin learning hidden truths about yourself. So another sidebar for me that I think I can like bring it down to earth a little bit more and talk about how this has actually helped me. So 
I've realized that much of my life, I was completely disconnected from my body too. I wasn't tuned into my bodily sensations. And so when I would feel that like my stomach hurt or something, like I just kind of ignore it and suppress these feelings. And now that I'm practicing meditation and mindfulness and really practicing body awareness, and if I'm feeling tense in my shoulders or my jaw is clenching or something, I'm going, what am I feeling right now? take a deep breath. And so now I'm so aware of my body and I, and I'm not perfect at this by any means, but I'm more aware of my body now. And so now if I get an email like that from my boss, for example, and my jaw starts to clench and my shoulders are clenching, I'm like, okay, what story am I telling myself about this email that might be making me start to feel tense? And as you start tuning into this more, This helps you practice for when you really need this information when you can spot the red flags. If you're used to tuning into your body and you say go on a first date with someone and you kind of get that feeling in your stomach, they say something and you kind of like get that reaction and you know in your gut like "Mm, not great then you can just say thank you so much for a great night and then not talk to that person again and follow your gut instinct rather than saying, oh, but he was really hot and I don't know if I'll ever find anyone else again. So blah, blah, blah. And kind of like they love bomb you and you just kind of want to go with it and ignore that feeling. Does that make sense? Okay. So moving on in the article, the second tip that Martha shares is lesson number two the body sway. As you gain clarity about problematic areas in your life, you'll naturally wonder what to do about them. You can get clear yes or no answers by using the body sway. Stand with your feet shoulder width apart, weight balanced evenly over the soles of your feet. Think of something you know is bad for you. Frequenting opium dens, eating pork rinds, breathing heavy smog. (laughs) Her examples are so dorky, it kills me. Okay, I'm going to do a sidebar. So like think about something you know is bad for you. So like um I don't know, binge drinking or texting that person back you know you shouldn't text, right? Like so think about that. I'm going to give you some better examples than like opium dens. What is she talking about? Love her. So think of something you know is bad for you. Allow your body to move any way it wants. Next, Recenter your stance and think of something you know is good for you. Cool breezes, fresh fruit, naps, a hug from someone you love. Again, don't deliberately move. As you test this with other stimuli, your beloved goldfish, your nosy neighbor, what is she talking about? These examples kill me. You'll realize your intuition is always literally pushing you away from harm, gently pushing you toward harmony. When you consider doing something that would be bad for you, your body will likely lean backward, not drastically, but noticeably. When you imagine doing something good for yourself, your body will lean slightly forward. This is a really interesting exercise and I'm going to try it. I have not particularly tried the sway one, but what I love about this is just that it teaches you, it gets you into a habit of doing something body focused as I said before, so many of us are tuned out of our bodies 
And I really think it's important that we just do things that get us back in our bodies. I talked about on the last episode about shaking, like shamanic shaking, potentially just like literally shaking out your body. Getting into your body is so important. If you haven't heard of the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, there's so much research coming out now about trauma and how important it is to tune into your body, how all this trauma is held in our bodies and body awareness, somatic awareness is so important. So Martha says lesson number three is intuitive memory lane. You've probably resisted the pull of intuition in the past, which is why a trip down intuitive memory lane is incredibly helpful. Complete this exercise to rediscover the moments your internal compass was guiding you. So she goes on to say this exercise is, it's like a little chart, but I think we can do it just on the podcast thinking about it. So she says on a piece of paper, right? And you can pause the podcast and do this along with me if you want. I would actually recommend that potentially or do it at a time when you think you have more time. So she says on a piece of paper, you're going to write a column that says when my intuition said no. And then another column that says, when my intuition said yes. So she said in those columns, list several times, a minimum of three, when you felt an intuitive hunch that was that something wasn't right. So a bad relationship, a job that turned out really bad, a friend that you weren't sure you could trust, whatever, but didn't listen to your inner warning. And then sure enough, something went wrong. And she says, go ahead, confess. You're so cute, Martha. Now repeat the process. This time in the other column where it says intuition said yes, remember occasions that you did things that turned out well. Did you stay on the elevator for an extra floor to talk to that stranger who became your best friend? Did you adopt a hamster that became an internet megastar? Oh my God, these examples. I can't with her. She's such a dork and I love her. Join an intervention that saved an alcoholic's life. Even if you may have doubted these choices in the moment, your intuition sent the signal, do it. And thank heaven you did. I'll give you all an example about this too. I recently met someone who's become like a little sister to me and she just went through a really horrible experience of um, wondering whether she wanted to live here on this earth anymore. I don't want to go into too much detail to protect her privacy. And my gut said I needed to be there for her. And since then, I've developed a really beautiful connection with her. And she's there for me just as much as I'm there for her. And I got such an intuitive hit that that she was supposed to be in my life. And with Zaz, right? The moment I met him... I got this feeling like this person is safe. He's safe. And I trusted that. So when you're putting things in the, when my intuition said no column, think about those. When are those times when you're like, if you had an abusive relationship for an example, that could be one of your examples is like, what was the first time you remember being like, "Mm -mm." I, I remember that my gut said something was wrong. The first day that I, um, dated the guy who ended up being abusive in London was like when I knew he had the same job as me, but he was dropping tons of money on me 
and going to really expensive hotels. Like, and when I asked him about it, the answer he gave me didn't match up. And I thought, "Mm, something's not right here, but I ignored it. So now that you have your list, make a column. When my intuition said no, list one to six things. When my intuition said yes, one to six things. Now read over your lists. Think about any physical or emotional sensations you felt before defying your intuition and before listening to it. Then answer these questions. So here are the questions. What did you feel when you defied intuitive guidance? What sensations were common to all your negative experiences? The next question. What did you feel when you followed intuitive guidance? What sensations were common to all your positive experiences? Next question. Where are you feeling intuitive approval sensations right now? What decisions are you making that create the feeling of intuitive approval? Next, where are you feeling intuitive disapproval right now? What decisions are you making that create the sensations of pushing you back against your intuition? I love these questions so much, guys. I'm going to link this, by the way, in the show notes. So in the episode description, I'm going to link this because it shows you how to line out these. You can even write it down in the actual article and all the questions are listed there for you. So I encourage you to go into the episode description and click into this and fill these out. I'll link all these articles too so you can go back. But when I'm reflecting just to help you in this exercise, it's like, what did you feel when you ignored your gut instinct? Think about like those feelings in your gut. Did you feel your stomach hurt? You kind of felt like it didn't feel right. This is such a powerful exercise to go through, y'all. So please, 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 please do this on your own. All right. So Martha's next exercise is lesson number four. It's called intuitive scoring. This one is super cool. I'll still link it in the show notes, but you can kind of do it now. And it's actually quite cool that I'm going to be reading it out to you and you'll see why. So she says, As you become more attentive to your intuition, you'll start to see that it's always running, always communicating, even in subtle ways. This exercise can sharpen your listening skills. Read through the statements and rate your intuitive response to each, from very negative to very positive. Your strongest intuitive yes sensation has a numeric score of three. Your strongest intuitive no gets a score of negative three. So I'm going to link to this because this has like, think about like a, a, a bubble, a fill in the bubble test that you would have taken in school. That's what it looks like here. So you're going to fill it in. But the really beautiful part about the fact that I'm just going to read you these questions is when I read these to you, these statements, really tune in and I'm going to read them slowly and pause after each of them. And I want you to think about how you feel in your body when I read these And the feelings that come up for you are going to be really powerful markers of whether what your intuition is telling you about these things, right? So when I read these and I pause afterwards, really think about how you feel in your body. And this is intuitive scoring. So here's the first statement. And after I read it, Just take a deep breath right now together. Let's do it. (sighs) 
And when I read this statement, how do you feel? I'm in the best possible relationship. How did you feel? The next statement. I should rethink my career. I'm living in the right place for me. I should change something in my home. I'm not eating right for my body. I have all the friends I need right now. I'm on the track of my life's purpose. There's an activity in my life that I engage in regularly that I need to stop. I need more rest. So I want you to just think about how you felt when I read those statements and the feelings that come up for you are going to be really powerful indicators of what your intuition is telling you. So Martha's last tip is lesson number five, a conversation with intuition. She says, now we're going to access your intuition by asking it to use language, but in an unfamiliar way, you're going to have a conversation with it. So first, you'll write a question with your dominant hand. That's like the hand that you usually write with. I'm a lefty, by the way. I write with my left hand. Fun fact about me. Then switch to your non-dominant hand and allow any answer that wants to scrawl out on the page. Here's an example. Brianna is trying to decide whether to stay in her soul-murdering job. She wrote out questions about this using her non-dominant hand, then switched to her dominant hand to write answers. The results surprised and excited her. Here they are. So before I read these, I have done this before, and it's surprisingly really powerful. I've also done like, they say that if you write, um, ask questions, you can kind of communicate with your inner child by writing a question with your dominant hand, which for me is my left hand, and then writing the answer from your inner child with your non-dominant hand, which for me is my right hand. And it's obviously like when you write with the hand that you don't normally write with, it looks like chicken scratch. It looks crazy, right? But I know it might sound wild, but just try this for me. And I think you'll be really surprised. So Martha Beck is a life coach. And so she's sharing what one of her clients, Brianna, did. So here's the sample intuition conversation Brianna had with herself about her job. So with her dominant hand, she wrote, should I quit my job? And the answer that she tuned into her intuition and she wrote with her non-dominant hand and it said, yes, once I quit, I can get moving. Then she asked herself another question with her dominant hand, moving, what does that mean? And with her non-dominant hand, the answer was, I can start moving toward a more creative way of living. Dominant hand, creative, non-dominant hand. Like when I was in third grade and made a farm out of clay. Dominant hand. 
Am I saying I can make a living building farms out of clay? Non-dominant hand. No, but something similar. Dominant hand. What? How? Non-dominant hand. Quit my job and the new path will appear. Now it's your turn. Write a question using your dominant hand. Switch the pen to your non-dominant hand and let any answer blurt out. Then switch the pen back and write another question. Repeat as many times as you want. Finally, as you master the skills above, you'll find yourself turning on your intuition as often and as usefully as you send texts. You'll feel safer in the world, make better choices, and discover more joy in living. Of course, I don't know this for certain. I just have a very strong hunch. She's so cute. I love the way that she writes. So as I said before, I'm going to link this article in the show notes so that you can go back and do all of these exercises. And I just encourage you to, there are thousands of articles and resources out there, how to connect to your intuitive side, how to start listening to your gut, how to tune into your body more. I encourage you to find things that work for you, that teachers and thought leaders that um, inspire you like I've done for myself. And I hope that this conversation was beneficial for you today. I hope that you felt seen. I hope that by me being vulnerable and sharing my story, this can make someone out there feel less alone and less crazy and less broken because you are not broken. There's nothing wrong with you. I often found myself like I'm just doomed. I'm doomed to just be in toxic relationships. I'm doomed to be alone. I'm doomed to feel horrible and miserable always. That's not true. I just needed to wake up long enough to zoom out and see those patterns and just be like, woof, I'm getting off this fucking Ferris wheel of hell. (laughs) Cause I just felt like I was going around and around and you don't have to be on that ride. And I'm going to call this episode. Love doesn't have to hurt because it doesn't. And I want you to find a love that isn't painful. I want you to find one that's strong and stable and makes you feel like you have a best friend and doesn't set off any of your red flags. And in order to do that, you really do have to be your own best friend first. You can't skip that part. And you can do that while you're in a relationship too. There's a chance you're hearing this and you're with a person that's a really good person, but you find yourself kind of getting called back into that chaotic spiral like I so often have in my relationship with Zaz. And tuning into your intuition and learning to tune into your body and be your own best friend is a powerful thing for all of us. If we're single, if we're in a relationship, if we're in a relationship maybe we know we shouldn't be in, it's helpful for everyone. And as always, offer yourself love and compassion. This is hard, hard work. These are patterns that are deeply ingrained. No one showed you how to do this. This is called reparenting yourself. It's not easy and you deserve all of the love in the world. And as you're doing this stuff, don't forget that 
It can be fun. It can be relaxing too. Give yourself self-care this week. And I mean like really. Slow down. Rest, relax. Tune into your creative side. Tune into that intuition. Think about where the patterns are. Think about the times that you didn't listen to your intuition, the times that you did, and how your life could be different if you listened to it every single time, if you stopped ignoring it from here on out. We can't change anything that happened in the past, but we can make different choices moving forward. So with that, I love each and every one of you who is listening right now sending you a huge virtual hug because this has been a tough one. It's been a tough one for me too. I didn't expect to get emotional. I had forgotten about some of that stuff that kind of just came up when I was sharing it with you and I'm going to be done with this and go give my inner child some love as well. And until next time, have the most amazing week and If you decide to do some of these exercises and they're helpful for you, or if what I said, you know, touched you and you're going through something similar, please share it with me, share it, leave a comment on YouTube, leave a review and include it there, comment on Instagram, send me a DM, share, please. I want to hear, I love hearing from you. I love getting feedback from the episodes because I asked you for feedback last episode, like, do you want a menstrual cycle awareness episode? And damn, you gave feedback. So please giving me, keep giving me feedback because it helps me know that I'm on the right track, helps me know that I'm sharing wisdom and advice and uh, just vulnerable things that help you. That's what I want. So have I'm actually going to stop talking now. <laughs> um, enjoy the rest of your day wherever you're listening to this and big hugs. All right, you messy, amazing, emotional, fabulous human beings doing this life thing. That is it for today's episode. I want to thank you so much for listening because out of all the millions, billions of podcasts in the world, you chose to listen to mine. And that means a lot to me. And if you listen this far, I know you never want to miss a new episode. So to make sure that doesn't happen, click follow in your podcast player of choice and you will be alerted every time I drop a new one. To help me grow and help the podcast reach as many people as possible, go ahead and leave an honest rating and review. Not only that, I love to hear your feedback, so please share it with me. I read every single review and you just might hear it read out loud on the podcast. To connect with me directly, follow me on social media and keep up with all the new updates. You can find that all at backfromtheborderline.com. And as always, any articles, resources, or other helpful information you've heard today can be found in the description of this podcast episode. So don't forget to check out the show notes. And until we meet again, remember, life is a circle, a cycle, a process, separation, initiation, return.
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.